Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Give ear to the word of God. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The same is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, um, but kind of going through uh, this passage a little bit at a time, and we'll probably spend another Sunday or so even on it. There's a lot in it. Uh, too much to go through in, in a week. In, in some ways. But last week, if you were here, we looked mainly at verses 13 through 15. We read the whole passage, but we looked mainly at 13 through 15. And there we saw that God rebuked those among his people in Israel who were speaking what he calls hard words against him. A lot of the people there, maybe the majority, were speaking hard words against God. And what was the gist of what they were saying? Verse 14 says that they were saying it was, quote, vain to serve God. That was their blasphemous accusation against God, that it was vain or worthless or useless to serve him. It was of no use. Now, part of the error and sin that they were committing was these people were guilty of hypocrisy. You know, when you read the whole, it's not a very long book, when you read Malachi from from front to back, all four chapters, especially up into the point we're at now, uh, you notice that they weren't really serving God at all, were they? They were going through motions. They were, you know, to use our terminology, they were going to church. Maybe they were putting something in the the plate, you know, so to speak. They were going through motions, but they really weren't serving God at all. And you can tell by their reactions. You can tell by the way that they were living their lives. They claimed to serve God when all they were doing was really going through the motions in a hypocritical way. They were committing iniquity and abominations in God's sight. You know, to use the language of Isaiah 113, they were guilty of mixing iniquity and solemn assembly. That's the word for that is hypocrisy. They were living like the devil the rest of the week and then showing up at church on Sunday as if that made everything uh, just fine and God would have none of it. And he calls them out forward. Well, here in our text in verses 16 through 18, thankfully, we see the flip side of that coin. You know, instead of focusing all of our attention on those who hypocritically claimed to serve God and didn't, we see there was a remnant of people of the faithful in, in Israel that really served God and feared Verse 16, it says, they feared the Lord and truly served him. And so to those who feared the Lord and truly served him from the heart, God promised great reward. He would tell his people not to lose heart because of the evil speaking of the wicked among them. And even in the visible church, there were so many in their day that that did not truly serve God and spoke evil of God. But his people, the faithful remnant, must take heart and be encouraged there, there is as God promises here in our text, that they themselves, verse 18, would what? They, he tells them they would surely see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve. And notice the apposition, if I can use a grammatical term there. Uh, he's equating the righteous with those who serve God and the wicked with those who do not serve him. That is the connection we are to draw there, that he, the scriptures draw there in verse 18. 
Um, you might know I've mentioned it probably ad nauseum, but my favorite Puritan writer is Thomas Watson, and he wrote a commentary of sorts on, on, this, on these three verses, the, the, a little book uh, you can get from Banner of Truth Trust called The Great Gain of Godliness. He borrows that term from First Timothy, Paul's words about godliness is great gain. Um, but he calls it The Great Gain of Godliness, and I have uh, shamelessly stole the title of that book as our sermon title, not that the title of a sermon matters that much, uh, but I would commend that work, that book to you. It's not that long uh, for your own reading and edification. It's worth your time. And now I won't spend remotely as much time in a sermon or two on this text as Watson did. I, won't, I did not write 166 pages of sermon. You should be probably glad I didn't do that. Um, but uh, we will be borrowing a little bit from his book and certainly found much of it useful. I, I originally, I told Rob on Friday, I originally was going to borrow my outline from the book too. And I'll make use of the points he makes in the book, but I, I, as I was writing it, it didn't turn out that way. So, But uh, he makes mention of God's regard, God's recording, and God's rewarding of the piety of his people. We're going to go through that, but that won't be the outline uh, this morning. So we're going to look at three things from our text, Lord willing, from, from this passage. Uh, first, we're going to see the remnant of the Lord. The remnant of the Lord. Second, the reverence for or fear of the Lord. And thirdly, the regard of the Lord for his faithful remnant. So the remnant of the Lord, the reverence for the Lord, and the regard of the Lord for his remnant. So the first thing we see in our text is that no matter how bad things may get, and when you read Malachi, you get the impression, distinct impression that things were not going well uh, in the visible church. But no matter how bad things get, God graciously preserves a faithful remnant of his people for himself. That has always been the case. You know, if you are a student or if you like to read through church history, maybe you're a, a big reader of the history of the Reformation, you know, you, you could have at that time probably been forgiven for thinking that the church, the real church, was almost non-existent. That the gospel, the light of the gospel was almost extinguished, but there was always a remnant and even the Reformation of the 16th century didn't happen in a vacuum. There were forerunners of it. There was a faithful remnant that worked and served God in their generation uh, in many ways that prepared the way for the Reformation that we think of with Luther and Calvin and others. But look at verse 16 where it tells us of this remnant. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So, you know, when you read up to this point in the book, you, know, you, could, be, you could be forgiven from thinking, man, no one in Israel was faithful. The priests, God has hard words for the priests in this short book and their unfaithfulness and failing to teach the whole counsel of God to his people to such a degree that the people were living in all kinds of sins uh, and, and, and straying from the ways of God. But here in our text, we see that God had preserved for himself a remnant. You know, we might think that religion that's pure and undefiled before God, James 127, had almost ceased from the earth. But that is not the case and never is. Uh, God had preserved for himself a faithful remnant among his people. I might ask you, if you remember the story of Elijah. Now, I've been reading this child story Bible to Luke at night, uh, many nights, and we're just got through the section with Elijah and Elisha about the story of the prophet Elijah. You might know that after the, the victory of, of, over the prophets at Mount Carmel, uh, that great story, that after one, that great victory, there was a great time in his life 
uh, where he thought he was defeated. The lowest point maybe in his life as a prophet was after one of his greatest victories. He, he got to the point, you might remember, where he thought it was just him. He thought he was the last of the Mohicans, so to speak. He was the last faithful one, the last faithful prophet on earth, and they were trying to kill him too. You know, you almost get the impression he thought, if I'm gone, you know, the, Israel's gone. If I'm gone, the truth of God is snuffed out, and then what do we do? And God found Elijah hiding for his life in a cave, and he asked him, not that God needs to ask questions, but he asked him, why he, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you here in this cave? You know, don't you have things better to do? And 1 Kings 19.10, this is what Elijah says to God. 1 Kings 19, verse 10 Elijah says to God, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's pretty bad. I mean, and think, of it, think about the context here, how awful this must have been. He's not saying that foreign invaders had come in and done all this. He's saying the, the covenant people of God, his own people, Israel, had forsaken their covenant with God, destroyed or thrown down God's altars, and what, you know what else they did? They, they built altars to Baal and to false gods, killed your prophets with the sword, and he was the last one left, and they were coming after him next. In other words, he's like, here's why I'm hiding in a cave, God. They're coming to get me, and I'm the last, I'm the last one left. What was God's reply? Do you remember? Well, first he tells Elijah essentially that help was on the way. He wasn't alone. He tells Elijah to anoint three people. He tells him to anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, verse 15, and then to anoint Jehu as king over Israel. And then last but not least, he was to anoint Elisha to take his place. You're not going to be the last one. You know, we're going to pass the baton. You're going to anoint Elisha as prophet in his place. And specifically, what were those three individuals going to do? They were going to destroy all of his enemies in due time. He tells them. He tells them that Hazael, the king of Syria, Jehu, the king over Israel, and even Elisha, the prophet. You picture a prophet with a sword or something. like. They were going to destroy all these people, these wicked enemies of, of God's people, in due time, and although his enemies were seeking his life, he told God to take it away, it was the Lord himself who would take Elijah home to heaven with chariots of fire and horses of fire and a whirlwind, Second Kings 2 verse 11. That word for taken in Second Kings chapter 2 is the exact same Hebrew word that Elijah used back in First Kings 19.10 when he spoke of his fear that the wicked were going to take his life away it's as if God, it's like a play on words. God's like, they're not going to take your life away. I'm going to take you home. You might know Elijah's one of the two people in the Old Testament that never died. God just took him straight home. Him and Enoch as well. Now, what, what else did, uh, did God tell Elijah in his time of trial and despair? In 1 Kings 19, verse 18, he says to him, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Kissing is an idea. The Greek word for worship means to kiss toward. Uh, it's the same idea. This, this image of kissing is an idea of, of worship. 
So Elijah was not only not the only one left, uh, but as Paul quotes that text in Romans 11:4, God himself had reserved or kept for himself 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, I'm not good at math, but 7,000 is a lot more than one. And Elijah thought it was just one. God's like, no, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm preserving and building my church, so to speak. I have reserved. In other words, God, it wasn't just a, a, a coincidence. God himself had kept them. And he had kept them, as Paul says, for himself to do his will. And so even in Malachi's day and in our day as well, no matter how bad things may seem, how bad they may get, how few in the visible church may seem to be truly serving God in our day, no matter, no matter, no matter how many pastors seem to be unfaithful in teaching their flocks the whole counsel of God, no matter how many churches seem to have degenerated to the point of having, as Revelation speaks of, their lampstands removed and becoming nothing but synagogues of Satan, as Revelation 2.9 speaks of, and our Confession of Faith even mentions the same thing. Uh, nevertheless, God has reserved for himself at all times a remnant, and Christ is still building his church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Those are facts. Those are things that will not change. God's word cannot fail. And so, you know, after everything that you and I have seen so far in the book of Malachi, it would have been easy uh, for the faithful remnant in Israel in, in, in his day to have gotten discouraged, to think almost to say the same things that the wicked had said. What's the use, right? What's the use in serving God? Now, certainly they were aware of the, the iniquity, the apostasy, the hypocrisy that was going on, maybe even by the majority in the land in their day, but perhaps they were tempted to despair, kind of like Elijah, and throw, throw in their lot with those who thought it was vain to serve God. But that's not what they did, is it? Thankfully for us, uh, Malachi records this for us. What, what did they do? They did quite the opposite, and that brings us to our second point. That is, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is, is quite prominent in our text, and it's our second point this morning. It says in verse 16, and it could have just said the faithful spoke with one another. They said that, it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They did not give in to despair. They didn't give up. They didn't join in with those who spoke evil of God. And why not? It tells us because they feared the Lord. They had a genuine fear of God. Now, the implication, I think, is clear that those who spoke evil of God and said it was vain to serve him, what was their main problem? You could say unbelief. They didn't fear God. They went through the motions of worshiping God, but in their heart of hearts, they never actually feared God. The fear of God was absent from them, just as it's absent from, uh, in, in the lives of, of pagans in their day. They were of the covenant people, but they weren't living and acting like it at all. But God's people, his remnant, feared God. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? That, that, that phrase you might find uh, somewhat strange. But to fear God rightly, as the Bible often, very often exhorts us to do, not just in our passage, but in very many places in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. Uh, the fear of God that the Bible ex exhorts us to, in, to exhibit is not a slavish terror of God. God's people are not you know, flinching you know, as if God's going to strike them. It is, it is the fear of a child for his or her father. It is, a, it is a kind of love and deep reverence for God, similar to what a child has for his or her father. That is the kind of fear of God that the Bible encourages us to 
to inhibit and inhabit in our lives. Now, the fear of God, there's a lot of things the Bible tells us about it. We can't go through all of it this morning. But the fear of God, for example, will be a restraint against sin. It's a restraint against sin. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Job chapter 1, verse 1 says, it's introducing Job to us. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. And then what does it say? One who feared God and turned away from evil. Those two things go together. The one leads to the other. Fearing God and turning away from evil, uh, the one is the cause of the latter. Very often the scriptures, the word of God, links fearing God together with keeping his commandments. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, The end of the matter all has been heard. This summarizes the, the whole book. And what is that end? What is that summary? Fear God and do what? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In a sense, the whole Christian life can be summed up in that sentence, that short phrase. Fear God and keep his commandments. What does God want you to how does God want you to live as a believer saved by his grace? There it is. Fear God and seek to keep his commandments, for it's the whole duty of man. That's a summary of God of our duty to God. The fear of the Lord will also serve as a restraint against speaking evil of God. You can tell that in our text by the ones who didn't fear God. What did they do? They spoke evil, hard words against God, saying it was vain to serve him. You might remember the the thieves on the cross when Jesus was being crucified between two thieves. Uh, The unrepentant thief on the cross, you could tell by his words. What did he do? It says he railed at Jesus. And said in Luke 23, 39, he says to him, he's mocking him, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He wasn't saying that in a way of faith. He was mocking him. He's saying, you're dying right next to me. You're supposed to be the Son of God. You're supposed to be the Messiah. What was the other thief's reply? Did he join in with him in mocking Christ? No, he rebuked him, it says. And he said, do you not fear God? Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, who are you to talk? You're a capital offense criminal. You're being executed right alongside me for the same thing, and you know you did it. He says, and we indeed justly. He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his deserving of of the fate he was enduring at the time of being put to death. And he says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He rebukes him, and he says, uh, do you not fear God? What's the implication? If you feared God, you'd never dare say what you're saying. You deserve what you're getting. I deserve what we're getting. He does not. He had done nothing wrong. Now, the work of God saving grace in that condemned criminal the work, the work of God's grace is much evident in his life, even at that last moment, even at the 11th hour of his life, God's grace was active in his life. It says he owned his own sin and guilt before God. He didn't try to say he was framed or didn't deserve it. He acknowledged his sin. He was zealous to defend the honor of Christ's name. And he even believed that Jesus, despite hanging on the cross right next to him, 
was the Christ. You, you know, you could be, he could be, it could be understood if he was hanging there and thought to himself, well, maybe he's not what he's supposed to be. But it's not what he says in Luke 23, verses 42 to 43. It says this. He said, this other, other thief, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. This man had the faith given to him by God, by, by the work of, of the Holy Spirit, to look at a dying man next to him and still believe he was going to come into a kingdom. And Jesus promised him he'd be with him in paradise that very day. That's faith. That's saving faith. That's amazing, God-given faith. He believed that Jesus, even while he was dying on the cross, was the long-awaited Messiah and King, and that he was still going to have a kingdom. And our Lord Jesus, who came in to, see, to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10, snatched a soul that was moments away from an eternity in hell, and promised him a place in paradise with him forever. Never give up, even at the last minute, somebody might come to faith and salvation by God's grace. Now those who don't fear God and will not refrain from speaking evil and blasphemous things of God when things don't go their way, that's, that's how it goes. But the fear of God will lead a child of God to be zealous to defend the honor of his name, even in time of trial and difficulty. You know, it's, it's as if, remember what Satan said of Job? You know, when, when God, you know, God volunteered Job for, for the job, so to speak, play on words, I guess, to, to be tried by all these things that happened. And what did Satan say to God? And the phrase fear is in there again. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, look, you've prospered him and blessed him. Of course he's going to serve you. Of course he's not going to blaspheme your name. But, you know, let me at him and we'll see what really happens. And we know what happened. Job did not speak evil of God. He did not charge God with wrong. We'll learn to say, by God's grace, may we learn to say, as, as Job did in Job 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And then what did he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even when God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And Think about this in, in Job 1 verse 20. After all these horrible things happened to Job, what did Job do? He grieved. He worshipped. Even all those awful things that happened didn't keep him from worshipping God. He, after he lost everything and he blessed God. And then in verse 22, it kind of sums it up. It says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He did not speak evil of God. Why? He feared God. There was no one like him on earth who feared God and kept his commandments, God told the evil one. He feared God and did not charge God with wrong. Whatever, God, whatever our God does is right. So let us imitate the faith of the godly in Malachi's day, who feared the Lord, who esteemed his name, even when no one else seemed to be doing so. And they met together to converse of the things of God. They didn't stop meeting together to talk about God. That's what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. We looked at this text a number of weeks ago, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, it says this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more 
as you see the day drawing near. That's what the people in Malachi's day, those who feared the Lord, that's what they did. They did not give up meeting together and they considered one another to stir each other up to love and good works and to make themselves grow in the faith. So as he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope together no matter what others around us may be doing. Let us seek to stir, stir each other up to love and good works and let us make it our habit to meet together for worship and to encourage each other in the faith, in the fear of God. That's what the faithful remnant who feared the Lord did in Malachi's day. They gathered together to talk about the things of God. They gathered together to stir each other up in the fear and service of God when so many of all those around them were doing the exact opposite and going through the motions and speaking evil of God and blaspheming his name. Well, the last, last but not least, the third thing we see in our text is not just the remnant, not just the reverence for the Lord, but also the regard of the Lord for his faithful remnant. It's the third and last thing we see in our text, the, the, the regard of the Lord for his faithful remnant. They spoke with each other in the fear of God, and no doubt they greatly encouraged each other in the faith, but there was something else even more important that Malachi doesn't want us to fail to notice, and that is simply the fact that God himself took notice of it. God himself took notice of it. Look at verse 16 again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and then what does it say? The Lord... The Lord paid attention and heard them. They weren't talking to God, but God heard them. He heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So, so God paid attention. He took notice. The King James says he hearkened and heard it. Think about what an encouragement that should be to us to know that God notices God notices when no one else does. Your service in his name that perhaps no one else sees, God notices it. Your time on your knees in prayer in secret in your prayer closet, so to speak, God notices it and he hears it and will answer and reward you in due time. The word of God is full of passages that speak of someone doing good or evil in the eyes of the Lord. Someone does evil, how? In the eyes, in the eyes of the Lord. God sees it and God hears the first commandment that God tells us, you know, what does he say? You shall have no other gods before me. That is in his sight. The, the shorter catechism, question 48, says this. It says that the words before me in Exodus 20, verse 3, teach us, it says, that God who seeth all things taketh notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. In other words, God, it's, it's, he's reminding us he sees it all. When we have a false God before him, in his presence, God sees it and takes notice of it. Not only does God see all and take notice of all sin, iniquity, and blasphemy, but he also takes notice of, takes special notice of his people who fear him and esteem his great name. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God's eyes, so to speak, run to and fro. They're, they're constantly scanning the globe, so to speak. And notice, notice what it, the way it words it, too. Throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is what? Blameless toward him. He sees the heart. Remember, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. His eyes go to and forth, even looking at our hearts. Even noticing the words, you know, 
the faithful, those who feared God in Malachi's day, I think it's instructive for us that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't even go into any detail about what they did. Certainly they served God in, in many ways. All it took was their words. God took notice even of their words. Their words were enough in showing that they feared God, that God was determined to notice it and even to reward them, to record it in his book, so to speak. God, God sees all things and knows all things, but he is especially on the lookout to give strong support to those who fear him and seek to walk before him blamelessly in Christ. Think about the example, another Old Testament example, of the Hebrew midwives. Remember the story of the, in the book of Exodus in, in the first chapter of Exodus? I remember Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives, you know, when the Hebrew women are there ready to give birth, if it's a male child, what were they supposed to do? Kill it. This was the first uh, Planned Parenthood organization. Abortion is not some new thing. It was even back in the book of Exodus. They were supposed to kill the male infants of the Hebrew women at birth. So the abomination of abortion is not new, but we're told, even told their names. We're told of Shifra and Pua, these names that God saw to it to record in his word, these two Hebrew midwives, and this is what it says of them, Exodus 1.17, it says that they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Why did they disobey Pharaoh? Because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They feared God rather than men, and so they obeyed God rather than men. In verses 20 to 21, it says this of those midwives. It says, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, it says it twice in the text, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. They were, no, they were you know, servants. Midwives at the time probably weren't, it wasn't the glamour job, and yet they feared God and they acted upon it, and God took notice of it and blessed them for it. Because they feared God, he gave them families, and God dealt well with them. They feared God, and, regard, and God regarded them for it, and he rewarded them for it in due time. The Hebrew midwives, they feared, they learned that it was not vain to serve God, it was not vain to fear God, and we should learn from their example. I think their example is written in Exodus for us to learn from it. And the fact that God took note of their names and even recorded their names in Scripture, I think, speaks well when he talks about in our text of recording it in his book. Their names are literally in his book for us to see. God, God regards those who are zealous for his glory, the glory of his name. He regards our words of praise and encouragement that we utter to one another, even if it seems like we utter them in some distant and lonely corner all by ourselves somewhere. God takes notice. God regards those who fear him. He hears the words that we say uh, in his praise and defense of his honor. He records it, as it were, in a book of remembrance, he says. That means, you know, what does that mean? Does God have a literal book? I don't think that's what it really means. But, but what, does it, what does it tell us? That even if his reward might not seem apparent right away, it means that it is sure to come. God does not forget. That's the point. God is sure to remember the good works of his people done in faith in Christ. That's why Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he what? He rewards those who seek him. It takes faith to live that way. 
to draw near to God and seek him in all things and to fear God and keep his commandments when many of us, many of those around us are doing the exact opposite. So you may be wondering, how is it that God who sees all things can possibly regard, record, and reward the love and good works of his people? After all, nothing you ever do in this life is free from the stain of sin. Our best good works on your best day still have sin and imperfection attached to them, don't they? I, don't think, I think it's safe to say none of us have ever in this life, even once, done a good deed that was perfect in every respect, that our motives were entirely true in every possible way. So how can God regard and even reward those kinds of works? You ever ask yourself that? Because to, to, to get that answer wrong is almost to put yourself in a position where you're saying, what's the use? Why should I bother serving God in my generation when I can't, I can't do anything? There's nothing I can do that can possibly measure up to God's standards. Well, Thomas Watson offers three reasons uh, why God can take such notice of people's services uh, to him in faith. First, he says that God does this, quote, not from any merit in them, but the impulsive cause is his free grace. The best duties of the righteous could not endure the scales of justice, but God will display the trophies of his mercy. Free grace accepts what justice might condemn. So it's not by any merit in them. Secondly, God take, God's taking notice of the good in his people is through Christ. That's the most important part. His taking notice of the good in his people is through Christ, he says, and he quotes Ephesians 1.6. He hath made us accepted in the beloved in Christ. Thirdly, he says, God takes notice of the services of his people because they flow from the principle of grace. And that last point reminds us, I think, of the words of Philippians 2.13, which says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As it has been said, rewarding the sincere good works of his people, however imperfect they may be, when God does that, God is simply crowning his own, his own gifts and graces. That's how God rewards the good works of his people. He's crowning his own gifts and graces. You know, the Confession of Faith has a chapter, chapter 16, on good works. Um, I've always found this particular paragraph to be very uh, encouraging. And it talks about good works in, in Confession of Faith 16.6. It says this, Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him, in Christ, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. How does God, why should you serve God? What good is it to fear God and serve him in your generation? Why do good works at all to please God? How can God accept them? He accepts them the same way he accepts you. If you're a believer in Christ, how does God accept you? In Christ. How, are, how does God see you as righteous in his sight if you're a believer in Christ? Not because you're righteous, not because I'm righteous, we still sin. He views us as righteous in his sight in Christ. Christ's righteousness is what God puts to your account 
by faith so that he can accept you as righteous in his sight in Christ. And not only that, he looks upon even your best good works, even your worst good works, also in Christ. That is why he is pleased very often to accept and even reward those imperfect good works. God, God by his grace, crowns his own gifts and graces in his people. May you and I learn to fear God as these people did and esteem his name in our own generation, trusting that God regards us by his grace in Christ and will graciously reward us in due time. To him be the glory in Jesus Christ forever. Amen.